Welcome, you're listening to the Media Talk 101 podcast. Media Talk 101 is a nonprofit ministry dedicated to teaching media discernment in the light of following Christ. We want to encourage you to visit our website, mediatalk101.org, where you can find helpful articles, videos, and other resources, including archives, to this podcast. My name is Philip Telfer. I'm the founder and director and the host of this program, and I'm back in the studio with my co-host, friend, and uh, co-worker, Rhett Simpkins. Rhett, it's great to be back in the studio this month with you. Yes, it is great, and I know we've had uh, quite a busy month since we last uh, talked to our podcast listeners. That's right. Yeah, and I know I've been uh, working here in the office, just doing my regular office duties, but we also have a lot you know, going on, getting ready for the Film Fest coming up. I've been updating the website and communicating with uh, speakers and all that goes into that. Tell, um, tell our listeners where they can find that website if they want to see all the new stuff that you've been putting up there. Sure, yeah, you can go to christianworldviewfilmfestival.com or if you want to give your fingers a break, you can uh, go to cwvff.com. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for all of your hard work. I'm glad that you're doing that and not me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, but you have been busy as well, haven't you? Uh, I think you just recently uh, did a couple speaking engagements, is that right? That's right. Well, I was uh, just got back from the Christian Media Association National Conference in Dallas, Texas. And so right here in our home state, but a little bit of a drive, my Oldest daughter, Elizabeth, went with me uh, on that journey. I had an opportunity. I was scheduled to speak uh, six times for a total of nine hours of talking. <laughs> so, hmm. um, and I, I was giving, I was there as, as the family track speaker. So a lot of the workshops were going to be on television production and film production, marketing, things like that. But they wanted to have a a track for families. So they thought that the media talk presentations were were a match. So I shared the media talk uh, standards, you know, media choices, convictions, or compromise, as well as uh, the counterfeit life. And also uh, the talk that I give on idolatry, you know, in media today. So that was good. It was good. We had a great uh, opportunity to, to network with several people in the Christian media industry. But I would say one of the highlights for the weekend at CMA was the keynote speaker, which uh, was Stephen Baldwin. And Hmm. now you know who Stephen Baldwin is, right? Yeah, I do. Okay. Now, did you know about him before uh, the video known as uh, Live In It? Yep, I had seen a couple of his movies back before he was a Christian. Okay, so probably not movies we'd recommend. Nope. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so for those for our listening audience, Stephen Baldwin is a Hollywood actor, and then he became a Christian. And then I was, I, I really learned about him uh, when he produced a kind of a documentary or extreme sports film about uh, skateboarders and bikers, about their, their sport and their faith. Uh, called Live in It, and I believe that I that was probably during the time when you were in my youth group uh, doing the skateboarding. Yeah, it was very shortly after that. Okay, yep. and I was delighted to have a resource to be able to uh, share with with other skateboarders. But uh, 
you know, it was powerful to hear his testimony. And though I don't want to take too much time for this podcast to to give a secondhand account of it, uh, he shared uh, in brief his uh, he and his wife were living in Arizona at the time, and they were needing a housekeeper. His wife was from Brazil, and so they were interviewing a, a this potential housekeeper from Brazil. And during the interview process, uh, she told Stephen that um, the, one of the reasons she wanted to work for them was that from the church that she went to in Brazil, they had a, a prophet who prophesied that if she would work for them, that they would get saved and uh, start a ministry. And wow. as, as she shared this, of course, he was really skeptical and was like, yeah, whatever, just can you keep the house clean? <laughs> and so, mm. so she ended up working with them and, and she also was reaching out to Stephen's wife during that time. And then eventually they moved on to New York and the housekeeper moved on somewhere else. And when they were in New York, Stephen's wife began to attend a church and that was for about a year. And at the end of that year, uh, she gave her heart to Jesus Christ and came home and sat down with Stephen and had a talk with him and said, hey, Stephen, you know, I've become a Christian and my passion is to uh, love and to pursue Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure what how that's going to affect us as they were married 10 years at that point, which is a pretty long Hollywood <laughs> you know, marriage. Mm-hmm. So that's remarkable in itself and the grace of God, uh, you know, apparently at work there. And so he was he was also somewhat just like, yeah, whatever, just you do your thing and I'll do mine. But what began to really impact him was for the next year, when he would get up, he would find his wife beside their bed uh, on her face praying uh, to God and also reading the Bible. She did that three hours every day, pray and read the Bible. And the first three months, he was just kind of like, yeah, whatever, look, my wife is in love with Jesus. Isn't that nice? You know, and then after about six months, he was getting more irritated with her. And, uh, but after about nine months, he began to realize, I believe that she's having a real encounter with the God of the universe and I'm not. And maybe I better start reading my Bible and, and reading a Bible and praying. And so he began seeking the Lord. And after several months, uh, he came to Christ. And it's a powerful story. He actually has a book. I've not read it, but uh, I think the title is a play on one of the movies he made because uh, the title of the book is The Unusual Suspect, and he mm-hmm. and uh, that is his story. So if someone's interested in learning more about Stephen Bald- Baldwin's uh, conversion and his, his life, you can uh, read about that in his own biography, The Unusual Suspect. But he was certainly uh, the highlight of the weekend, and I really uh, appreciated what he had to share. And then, you know, it was kind of right after that, we got, got back uh, to back home, and a couple days later, I was in the studio with a friend of mine, Jonathan, who has a ministry called Be Broken Ministries, and he has a radio program. Are you ready for this, Rhett? Sure. It's called Pure Sex Radio. <laughs> How about that? Wow. Well, his uh, ministry has to do with helping men overcome pornography addiction and that that stumbling block, and it's a it's a needed ministry. And I actually met Jonathan on a plane. We were, he was, 
he was flying back to San Antonio from somewhere, and I was flying back to San Antonio from somewhere, and we were uh, nearly almost next to each other. I think there was either either he was on one side and there was another passenger on my other side, or or something like that. But we were in a, a we had there's three of us in that little section, and I was actually trying to witness to uh, the other guy, <laughs> you know. So I had struck up a conversation and was trying to find a, a way to shift towards spiritual things, began talking about uh, my document, the documentary Captivated at the time, and this whole time Jonathan was listening in, and and eventually he's like, oh, are you, you know, uh, sounds like you're a Christian and you have a ministry, and he says, I'm a Christian, I have a ministry, and, and so since then we've, we've uh, been acquainted with each other's ministry, and he's been asking if I could come on his radio show for quite a long time, so... It just hasn't worked out until uh, this last week. And so I went into his studio and we recorded three broadcasts, three half-hour broadcasts. And you can uh, listen to part one if you want to. Uh, I don't know if I would necessarily type in pure sex radio in your browser um, <laughs> as, as a search. <laughs> yeah. But you could certainly, that's the that website is um, puresexradio.com. It'll take you right there. Or you could go to it off of, you know, if you did a search on Be Broken um, Ministries, you could find a link from their website as well. So, yes, yeah, so you can uh, hear the first the first uh, part part one with Jonathan and I in, in the studio. We had a great time. And once again, that's a, a weekly program. It not only is broadcast through the Internet, but it's also goes over the air on a select number of radio stations on Saturdays. So you can tune in to that. And then I also had another unique opportunity this last week and, and, and an, the same opportunity again this week to go to the University of Texas San Antonio campus in conjunction with uh, several ministries that put on a lunch. They call it Lunch and Learn for International Students. So it's an outreach to international students at the university. And it's an opportunity, they, they feed them lunch, and it's an opportunity for them to interact with, uh, you know, Americans and to brush up on their English, as well as hear guest speakers, you know, and and these guests, this is a Christian ministry, so they're always getting to hear Christian people share their mm-hmm. testimony and, and uh, point them to the Lord. And this was exciting. I had, uh, I had, a, I had attended a Lunch and Learn at last year, just as... Uh, check it out, because uh, one of the men involved in this is in our church, and so I wanted to just be supportive of what he's doing. And so I was excited, and it was great. I had an opportunity to speak to about 40 students from from various places, China, South Korea, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, India, you know, and mm. they, they come, and I had an opportunity to present some of my material uh, from the media choices, convictions, or compromise, and also share my testimony. I only had a only had a half hour to speak, which is not a long time. So the uh, they've actually invited me to come back, so I get to go back uh, this week and uh, share some more with the students. So I'm looking cool. looking forward to that. Now, before we uh, that's kind of gets us caught up to date on some of the media talk 101 news. And before we go any further, I thought it'd be fun, Rhett, to uh, do 
what I sometimes do in the presentations, and that is to do a media history quiz. What do you think about that? Sure. Now, have you taken this media history quiz, or have you ever done this in a presentation before? I uh, I have taken it years ago, and I don't think I've given it... No, I haven't given it in any presentation. Okay. And it's probably been a while since you've looked at it, so we'll... We'll see. We'll see how you do. Let's see if I remember. <laughs> so maybe get a piece of paper and you can write down your answers and we'll see how well you score. And okay. if you're listening and you're driving, then certainly don't do that while you're driving. But you can just kind of follow along. This is kind of a nice icebreaker that I do depending on the situation. If I have enough time, I like to do this. And so we'll have, I believe it's about nine questions. And about media history, just to see what, what do you know? So question number one, what was the year of the first color TV broadcast in the U.S.? And you're, this is multiple choice, so it's not so hard. Was it A, 1932, B, 1941, C, 1954, or D, 1972? Okay, what was the year of the first color television broadcast in the U.S.? Now, Rhett... There you go. You have multiple choice, and you've taken this test before, so you do have an advantage over some of our podcast listeners. So as they're thinking of the answer, what do you think it is? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's C, 1954. You are right. If we had some sort of bells or whistles or something, we'd... Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> okay, so that's right. So the first color TV broadcast in the U.S., 1954... Now, what's significant about this is that, you know, 1954 is really not that long ago. The, the, and uh, was, TV had been around, but it, it was really getting traction during the 50s. In fact, both my parents recall the time during the 50s when they were growing up as children that their parents brought a TV home, you know, mm. and brought it into the house. And what was remarkable is that in both of their cases... Neither of them had indoor plumbing at the time. Wow. <laughs> so so uh, there was, uh, you know, there's, as uh, it's been said, you know, there's more TVs in the U.S. than there are toilets. And that began in the 1950s, you know. So oh. so here we have, you know, in even in my own history, you know, my mom and dad, neither of them had indoor plumbing, but they had televisions. And this was supposed to be something that was going to bring the family together, you know. <laughs> it was going to, we could all gather around the TV. And not realizing that that whole idea, which was wrong, was going to foster a society today where now we have more televisions than we have children per household. And in fact, it's worse than that. There's more TVs than there are people per household. You know, according to the 2010 census, there's only 2.59 people per household in the U.S. And uh, according to some of the, the statistics I've seen on televisions, it's 2.93, I think, televisions per household in the U.S. So we have more TVs per household than we have people per household in the U.S. So, so much for bringing people together. It's been, uh, it still remains kind of the iconic um, media or medium for for media today as we talk about it we know it's not just the television anymore but it really that that was a huge shift in our culture so 1954 the first 
color television broadcast in the U.S. Let's go on to number two here. What was the name of the first home video game console in 1972? Now, Rhett, you're going to know this one because you've yep. watched <laughs> you watched Captivated so many times. And if our and if our podcast listeners, if any of you have seen Captivated, you're going to know this. But if you haven't, here are the options here. So, A, the Nintendo Entertainment System. B, Commodore 64. C, Atari Pong. Or D, the Magnavox Odyssey. So what was the name of the first home video game console? This is 1972. An important year. Very, very important year. Not just for video games. To some of us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the year I was... Wasn't that the year the hacky sack was invented? Oh, I think so. I think there was a lot of great things that happened in 1972. <laughs> but, but you know, hey, maybe not the most important thing in history. Uh, but, hey, I was born in 1972. It's a good year. Yeah. So, um, okay. So what was it, Rhett? D, the Magnavox Odyssey. That's right. Now, most people, when I give this quiz at a conference will say Atari Pong, you know, <laughs> but, but that's not the right answer. I mean, the Atari Pong, you know, it was the Magnavox Odyssey was the first marketed home video game console. And it was really interesting. I usually, I put up a picture of it when we're, uh, when I'm giving presentations, it's kind of this archaic looking thing, but the interesting, it, it had different games, but in order to change the game, you actually had to put a little piece of plastic up on your up on your TV. You had to stick mm -hmm. it to the TV because all that console could do was you could have a controller that manipulate a white, you know, dot going across the screen, similar to Pong. So you would, you know, you'd put up, I think they had nine different games that you could play, but you had to put a new game board up on your television. Mm. So that was, uh, it's definitely video games have come a long way since then. Yeah. Now, Question number three, what new product hit the market in 1976? Was it A, Microsoft Windows Operating System, B, the Apple One Personal Computer, C, the Sony Walkman Personal Tape Player, or D, the Earbud Headphones? What do you think, Rhett? Ooh, it's a toss-up for me. I'm thinking... Mm... All right, I'm going to go with C, the Walkman. The Oh, you know what? I had a Sony Walkman. It was very popular, but that was a little bit later than this. Okay. So, in fact, I had one that re could record, which was nice. So I would used to I used to take it and uh, put it in front of the radio to record my favorite songs onto a cassette mm. and make my own mixtapes, you know. But no, the answer is actually B. Yeah, it was my next guess. Yep, and a lot of people don't get this one. You know, so they, uh, once in a while, I find someone who, who guesses right or, or actually knows the answer is the Apple One personal computer. And so for all you techies out there, here's the, here's the specs for the Apple One. The CPU, one megahertz. <laughs> so, <laughs> one, but you have to start somewhere. You know, the, yeah. the memory was four kilobytes. Okay. We're not talking about megabytes. We're talking about small, uh, you know, smaller amounts, kilobytes. Uh, but it was expandable to eight, and <laughs> and then the the price. Now this was the this is an interesting part of history here. The price that Steve Jobs put on his and this was a kit. You know, you bought you had to actually make your own computer, but he sold the kit, and he 
put the price as $666.66, which was somewhat a, a mockery of Christians, you know, the whole mark of the beast. And I don't believe the beast is necessarily a computer, as many people during that time, you know, were anticipating that there was going to be some, you know, futuristic computer that would be the beast. Some people believe that's the case, but uh, that's a debatable subject. And it also just kind of shows us a little bit about where Steve Jobs, you know, mentality was, at least towards Christians. Um, And maybe he was just thinking he was funny. Who knows? All right, next question here. Number four, what year was the World Wide Web introduced? Was it A, 1959, B, 1969, C, 1979, or D, 1989? Okay, I think I know this one. Okay, what do you think it is? Wait, wait. D. Oh! I just said it. Oh, okay, it's D. Is it D? I think so. It is D. 1989. How old were you in 1989? I was four years old. Four years old. So some people get confused with the World Wide Web and the Internet. So the Internet was created in 1969 by ARPANET, which was a group of researchers working for the Department of Defense. So there was a connected, you know, connected computers prior to 1989. But the World Wide Web that was introduced in 1989, and I graduated in high school in 1990. So, you know, I only knew one person who had an internet connection in their home, and that was my friend Eric. His father worked for what would, you know, he worked for the Department of Defense. So, his father. So that was um, why he had an internet connection at the house. And I remember Eric showing me the computer and telling me that it was connected, you know, to other computers uh, you know, across the country. And it just seemed very uninteresting, to be honest. <laughs> it's like, so what? What can you do with that? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was just like, even when I was in junior high, I took a, a computer class, like a computer programming class in junior high. And I don't even remember. I mean, so this is all, uh, oh, I suppose, what, what, you know, the C prompt stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. type in this, type in that. And I remember... It was so lame because we would type in all these commands in order to draw like a square, you know, to get something to draw a square. And I'm thinking, just give me a piece of paper and a pen and, uh, you know, five seconds. I'll draw you a square. What do we need computers (laughs) for? (laughs) Now, you know, certainly think my attitude towards computers has changed a little bit and the um, technology has advanced quite a bit. So it has to start somewhere. But yeah, 1989, that's not that long ago. And now we just take it for granted, you know, that the internet has, (laughs) at the World Wide Web, you know, has always been. And for some young people, it always has in their life. And they don't know any different. But uh, I would be what they consider a digital immigrant. You know, I've immigrated into the digital age. Whereas you, Rhett, you're right on the cusp there of being a Mm -hmm. digital native, you know. Although we we jumped on the bandwagon late, we didn't get an internet connection until two thousand. So okay, wow, wow, that's uh, you poor de- deprived child, you know. Yeah, man. Okay, here's another. Here's a new um, question here. Number five: How many videos are watched every day on YouTube? Is it a one hundred million, b five hundred million, or c 
2 billion or D 4 billion? Now, before you answer, just remember, there are only 7 billion people on the planet. So, you know, let's be realistic here. Yeah. Now, you said in a 24-hour period? No, every day. Yep, every day on YouTube. Yeah, every day. So is it... I think I'm going to have to go with B. 500 million? Okay, that's a little low, but that's quite a lot of videos. The answer is actually D. Wow. Four billion. <laughs> so what's what's even more shocking is that there are 100 hours of new video being uploaded every minute on YouTube. 100 hours. So, I mean, I think I tried to... I, I don't know if my calculations were precise. I did it really quick. And uh, here, let me grab a... Let me double check this. What I wanted to find out was, let's say, Rhett... You aspired to watch one day's worth of new content on YouTube, you know, and, and maybe there's some way that you could find out, okay, let's just pick, let's just, let me archive all, let's, let's watch all the films that were updated, all the videos that were updated on a particular date, like today. Um, so one, and 100 hours every minute. So there are 60 minutes, right? So there's 60 minutes in an hour times 24 hours, okay, times 100 hours, and that number is a, wow, 144,000. I don't think, <laughs> that's kind of a biblical number, but I don't think that's, there's any <laughs> correlation there. So, so that's, a, that's 144,000 hours of, of video being uploaded in a single day. Now, how many, I guess we'd have to figure out how many hours are in a year. So I'm going to write this down, okay? Because I'm not, I'm not a math whiz. There's probably people that can do this in their head. Are you like that, Rhett? Not quite, but I'll, I can figure it out. Okay, so I'm just, I'm a little bit slow when it comes to math. So we know that there are 24 hours in a day times 365 days out of the year. That's a total of 8,760 hours, according to my Casio MS805 two-way power calculator. Okay, so now what I'm going to do is take this 144,000, and I'm going to divide it by this 8,760, because what I want to find out is how long would it take us to watch one day's worth of new content, if you want to watch it all? And the answer is, here we go. 16.4 years. Wow. <laughs> so 16.4 years. If you were watching YouTube 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would take you over 16 years to watch one day's worth of new content. There you have it. By then, you'd be way in the past. <laughs> oh, man, you'd never catch up. I don't know why I was you know, inspired to do that, but you heard it here live. Philip calculated these numbers. I'll probably use that in the future. Now I'll tell people, do you know what it, take, it would take 16 and a half years to watch one day of new... How did you figure that out? Live on our podcast, you know? It's real challenging, but we better move on here. Okay, number six. How much did a 30-second commercial during the Super Bowl cost in 2012? Now, 2012, because 
I haven't updated this since 2012. I haven't looked, but I'm guessing that the price is pretty close. But here are the options. A, $530,000 for a 30-second commercial during the Super Bowl. $1.8 million. $3.5 million. Or $4.5 million. So A is $530,000. B is $1.8 million. C, $3.5 million. And D is $4.5 million. What do you think, Rhett? Boy. I thought I knew it. I'm going to I'm going to guess D. Okay, D, 4.5 million. Okay, then it's C. It's C. That's right. 3.5 million. Okay, now it's your turn to do math. How how much money is that per second? You got 30 seconds. 3.5 million. About a uh, $100,000 a minute a second? I think you're right. The answer is yes. It's approximately $100,000 a second. So, yeah, it's easier. It, it's easier to round it to the 3 million. So that's a lot of that's a lot of money. And that is by the way, that's beside the cost of producing that commercial. Mm. Which sometimes exceeds, you know, even this number. You know, depending on how much they're investing in that commercial, they can invest a lot. That's a big So that number is just to air it. That's just to air it. That, wow. That's just that's what it costs. Like if you want to pay for the ad during the Super Bowl commercial. Hmm. All right, number seven. What was the highest grossing video game of all time in its first twenty four hours? Now I know you know this one, but you're the contestant here, and you do have the advantage because so our podcast listeners know it's completely unfair because Rhett and I were actually talking about this prior to the podcast (laughs) so it's not really going to surprise him but uh it'll surprise you possibly so here are the options what the highest grossing video game of all time in its first 24 hours was it minecraft on xbox live you know we did a whole whole episode on minecraft was it halo 3 is it c grand theft auto 5 or is it d call of duty modern warfare 3 Okay, so those are your options. A, Minecraft on Xbox Live. B, Halo 3. C, Grand Theft Auto 5. Or D, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. Drum roll, please. No, no drum roll. Um, Okay, for those of you who don't know, Rhett is going to give us the answer. The answer is... C, Grand Theft Auto 5. That's right. C, Grand Theft Auto 5. Did you know that that broke seven Guinness World Records? And so these sales records, now, just just for perspective here, uh, before I tell you how much it made or, you know, how many units sold or how many, I guess, how much money in 24 hours they received from sales, let me go back to 2007. See, 2007, there was a game, Halo 3, that broke a record. It sold $170 million worth of games in 24 hours. And that record was not just a video game sales record. That was an entertainment industry sales record. Up to that point, nothing in no entertainment franchise of any sort. We're talking about movies. We're talking about music, anything. Nothing had sold $170 million worth of anything in 24 hours. Uh, shortly after that, there was 
that record was broke, you know, so, and actually by a book. <laughs> so Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows is a book that sold $220 million in 24 hours. But then that record was, was, was broke by uh, Grand Theft Auto 4, I believe it was. It was one of the earlier Grand Theft Auto games, and it sold around $300 million in 24 hours. And then that record was broke the year following by one of the Call of Duty games. And, and eventually it was the top dog at $360 million in 24 hours. Now, you have all that background and you have that perspective. Hopefully then you can understand how big this number is that I'm going to tell you. Grand Theft Auto, when it was released on uh, September 17th last year, 2013, it sold $815 million worth of games in 24 hours. That's crazy. And reached $1 billion in sales after just three days on December 20th. And so this is not just a video game sales record. This was an entertainment industry. So one of the Guinness World Records it set, set was fastest entertainment property to gross $1 billion. So it was it was record breaking, and we've talked about Grand Theft Auto before on this this program, so we don't have to belabor that now. But certainly, not a good game. You know, for those who are discerning, and who have their senses trained to discern good or evil, this does not fall in the good category of discernment. And yet, this is one of the fastest, biggest selling games of of uh, at least to set these records in a twenty four hour period. Wow. Okay, now, the average age of a person who plays video games is what? Is it A, 8 years old, B, 11 years old, C, 19 years old, or D, 33 years old? So we'll pause for effect just for a moment. Even though they say that, like silence in a broadcast, that's like the worst thing. That's the death knell for broadcasting you can't have it so i'll just keep talking here and stalling <laughs> so you don't have that uncomfortable silence but we don't want Rhett to answer right away because i have a hunch that Rhett actually knows this stuff i mean once again he has the advantage he's he's on staff at media talk 101 <laughs> you know he's he's heard these things from me or he's read about them and so he's not an average person you know most of the time when we do this people rarely get any of these right. <laughs> so it, it shocks them. Like, wow, I thought I would do better at this. And they, they they maybe get two or three right out of the nine or 10 questions. So Rhett, what's the answer? D, 33 years old. That's right, 33 years old. A lot of people think it's a lot younger. And you think, well, wow, how could that be? Well, you, you, all you have to do is put two and two together. Doesn't take rocket science. The first home video game console that was introduced in the United States was 1972. That was the year I was born. So I'm part of the first generation that grew up with video games in the home. And when you begin to foster appetites in uh, young children, those appetites generally don't go away. They actually increase. And so you give that industry a few years, starting from 1972, you give it a decade to kind of get ingrained in a culture and then what happens? Those children that grew up with those games are now, what age? They're around 33 years old. And they haven't lost their appetite. In fact, it's it, it, their appetite has increased. 
and they're not playing the Magnavox Odyssey anymore. That just doesn't do it for them. You know, Pong just doesn't do it for people. <laughs> you know, they've got to move on to to uh, uh, bigger and better games. And so that's why we have the average age of a video game player, 33 years old. Now the uh, next question here, what year, this is number nine, what year did the first DVD hit the market in the U.S.? Was this A, 1977, B, 1987, C, 1997, or D, 2000? The first DVD. Now this one may stump Rhett. I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering whether we've got one here that is even going to stump the MediaTalk 101 office director. Okay. Well, if my memory is good, and I'm pretty sure I remember this because I was... Um, How old were you? 12. Okay. I'm pretty sure, yeah, 12 or 13. So I'm pretty sure it was 1997. You did it. You got it right. It is 1997. <laughs> and so, boy, that's not that long ago. I mean, yeah, it's now, you, you know, as now that you're older, Rhett, that seems like eons ago. But really, in, <laughs> in uh, the history of the world, it's, it's not that long. So 1997. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the, the DVD, you know, going the way of the 8-track you know, <laughs> cassette player. And, you know, the, the, for another part of media history here is the CD or the compact disc was introduced in 1982. And I remember that, you know, because, you know, my parents, uh, we had, it was, it was an interesting part of our history because there was, you know, that we had the annual tax return, the tax refund. <laughs> and my, my family was kind of lower middle class. So there wasn't a lot of expendable income, except, you know, once a year, when you got the tax refund and there was a little extra there that you could do, you know, that the family could do something with. And, and every year was kind of like, what's, you know, what's mom and dad going to do with the, the tax return. And that in, uh, right around this time, around 1982, they were going to invest in a new, uh, entertainment system, you know, so they wanted to get a new receiver with speakers and, you know, the radio and cassette player. But then, I remember us being at the electronics store and the salesman was taking him around and he was pointing my parents to the new thing on the market, the new CD player. <laughs> Except the problem at that time was that there was hardly any CDs available, you know, mm. especially for Christians. You know, we were a Christian family. My parents were very particular about music, not allowing secular music in the home. So the only CDs that were available at the time were like Elvis Presley, maybe a Beatles you know, CD, but certainly, you know, at that point, not, and so there was kind of a risky proposition because, you know, also sometime in that season was the laser disc also came, and that, that didn't stick around, you know, so that was the laser movie disc, and so there were other, other things that kind of emerged, and so there was some skepticism, even my parents going like, well, we don't know whether this is really going to take off or not, and, and so they didn't, get the CD player. You know what they got instead? A state-of-the-art record player in mm. 1982 or whatever it was. And of course, right about that time, they stopped making records and people started making CDs. So, so much for that decision. All right. Well, so that was the media 
talk history quiz. And that was kind of fun. I think, Rhett, what was your final score? I think it was seven out of nine. Okay, seven out of nine. And I don't know how our podcast listeners did, but hopefully you did pretty good. Actually, it doesn't really matter how you did, (laughs) does it? Because we're not giving away anything. You know, it wasn't like there was a prize on the line. (laughs) You know, there wasn't a number you could call in. We're just, uh, you know, using this as an opportunity to talk about how things have changed quite a bit. Now, as we as we uh, kind of wrap up this podcast, we have a couple more things that we wanted to make note of. We want to thank our podcast listener, uh, John Clay, who uh, is faithful to send us links, like many of you are, when you come across them. And so he was the one who sent us a couple le- links this um, last month. And one of them was an article called Death of Conversation. Tell us about that, Rhett. Well, the article is mostly pictures, um, and it was written by a photographer. And uh, so I'll just kind of quote a little bit of what he says here. He says, I don't have a problem with portable text specifically because our devices facilitate our lives, but I believe it is making people seriously dull. I started to photograph people in company on their phones as there was a certain symmetry to them, and it appealed on a visual level. But as I continued, I noticed an inherent sadness to the proceedings. Before mobile phones were invented, people would have had no chance but to interact. However, that is no longer necessary, as we can now pretend we are doing something important on our devices, rather than think of something to say. This is killing conversation. I believe it's increasing social pain. And these are some pretty, um, they're well done photos. I, they're black and white. And I, I like black and white photography. The the um, composition is very nice, the contrast. But the, but all of the all of the images are of the of similar subjects, you know, people together, but on their own devices, ignoring one mm-hmm. another. And so here through the lens of a through the eyes of a photographer presenting this, but this is something we see every day. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it's something that my wife and I just, we get irked when we have people come over to our house and uh, here we have an opportunity to engage in conversation with somebody physically. We're, we're, we're present with them. And, uh, and oftentimes, you know, people are just talking to people via text and it, it can be kind of annoying. And I've, I've, many times thought, you know, I really need to implement some kind of system that just everybody knows when they come over to Rhett's house, that's not allowed, but we have yet to do that. Well, and some people have, you know, and now certainly where I first heard about this was through some grandparents who had a little collection basket at the door for the grandkids and they would take all of their electronic devices. Of course, the grandkids would freak out, but they wouldn't die, you know, and they would learn that uh, they had a great time with grandma and grandpa without being glued to the devices all the time. Now, I can see how that's probably a little bit easier for an authority figure like a grandma and grandpa with grandkids, but it's probably harder when it's peers, Mm -hmm. people closer to our age, uh, maybe family members, you know, that's, that's kind of sticky, you know, so I've, I've always tried to take a gracious approach with people, but uh, it's, it's not easy to, it's not easy to know how to handle it and to make suggestions. So I don't know, you have any other ideas, Rhett? I don't know. Actually, I've been thinking about that too with 
having, you know, we're going to have people over for Thanksgiving and that's coming up here pretty soon. And I know my family's really bad about this. Uh, they bring over their devices and they'll sit down and they'll put a little movie on for my boys. And it's like, well, they didn't even ask me and we're here as a family. And so I don't know, you know, it's difficult uh, to try to come up with a way to do that. But I, I guess one thing I have done is just to suggest, hey, why don't we all do this? You know, just to kind of break the ice. Sure, and that's kind of one of the principles we teach in our ministry is replace versus take away. Now, generally when we're teaching that, it's in the context of a parent with their children. You know, so when when a parent realizes, wow, I've kind of opened the door to some things that maybe I shouldn't have opened the door to, and we need to shift gears here, you know, I encourage them, don't just take things away unless you're dedicated and determined to replace those with better things. And for example, it would be, you know, so let's say you're going to get rid of video games. Well, then you're going to have to replace that with something more meaningful. You're going to have to, and it's going to take more time for the parent to sit down and play a board game mm-hmm. or to go out. We we learned this game at camp. It's uh, called Kube, K-U-B-B. And it's a really fun game. It's an outdoor game. It's a yard game. They call it Viking chess. You know, so it goes back. There's, there's, um, it goes way back in history, and it involves blocks of wood and throwing blocks of wood at other blocks of wood, and you know, teams against one another. And we we played it out at family camp. It was really a blast. So much so that I I looked up online and found instructions on you know the the size and weight and since we have a wood shop it was not a problem to make a set of of cube so we've been uh, playing that and also introducing that to others and anybody that comes over to our house uh, that has an opportunity to play says wow this is a really fun game you know so I've made uh, made another set for my brother and his family and and I'll probably find myself making sets for people or they'll just come over to our house to play but there's an example of where we, you know, you wouldn't want to just say, hey, let's, uh, could you put your phone away, please? That's really rude, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But if you engage people with with uh, activity, then that's, you know, replacing, not just taking away. And as you mentioned, you know, family and this podcast, we won't have another podcast till after Thanksgiving. So we have the next uh family gathering at a holiday would be Thanksgiving and and you're going to have probably have these issues. I know that I've had these things come up with uh, family gatherings of of uh, the family just you know being around the television or around the computer or you know and you're not together that often and not fostering conversation. And that's something that we need to work harder on is to to uh, build our skills at a conversation, and that's something that even recently, uh, my children, uh, three of them, three of my four children, are in the junior version of Toastmasters, which is called Gavel Club. So they're learning some public speaking. But I was helping my daughter, Grace, who's ten, to prepare a what they call an, the impromptu part or the table topics part of the the evening, and so I. I, rem- I gave her some help by preparing a question with something I learned when I was a youth pastor and you were in the youth group there, which was an acronym uh, FROM, F-R-O-M. 
and the it was it was something to help engage conversations with people that you don't know and you use you just use this little acronym from and it's and f stands for family ask them something about their family you know tell me about your family what's going on in your family that's that's not too hard and r stands for recreation you know tell me something about you know what do you like to do what's your hobbies you know do you like to play a sport what kind of games do you like to play you know so that can be helpful uh, in conversation is talking about recreation. The O actually stands for occupation. So if it's an adult, you know, so what is it? What do you do? That's a that's a kind of a standard. But people like to talk about what they do. Now for a child, you know, and I helped my daughter understand this to, to help the other children in her class understand that a child even has an occupation, but it's not like what we think of big people's occupation. A child's occupation, they're, they're occupied with school, they're occupied as a as a sibling or as a son or a daughter, <laughs> and so there's other ways that you could you can modify that O in in the acronym from. And the last one is memory. You know, to, to tell me about something memorable. Maybe if you're you know if you're gathering around Thanksgiving, tell, tell me about your you know most memorable Thanksgiving. You know, <laughs> or uh, some some great memory. And those those four questions will get conversation started. You know, as we talk about the death of conversation, this would be something that could help revive conversation. Just learning some skills and how to engage people. Here's one, Rhett, and this is not in the acronym from. It's not even an acronym at all. But it's something I found extremely useful, especially with men and boys. You ready for sure. this? It's what I call scar and tell. <laughs> <laughs> I've got plenty of stories. It works every time. I used to use this in youth ministry. Every time it works. All you have to do is start telling your best scar story. <laughs> you know, hey, once when I was riding a skateboard, man, I slipped and I got five stitches on my, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever your story is. You you tell your story and that's all you're going to have to do because if you're in a group of guys or boys, oh man, it just takes off like a rocket ship. I mean, before you know it, Everybody tries to one-up the other person. You know, they're going to come up with, oh, yeah. And if they don't have a better story, guess what they'll do? They'll tell someone else's story. They'll tell somebody else's story. So this is what I call, I invented this myself. It's called Scar and Tell. <laughs> so, I'm going to use that. You know, hopefully I'll be, uh, hopefully they'll, if I ever have a wiki entry, they'll attribute Scar and Tell to Philip Telfer. You know, <laughs> the conversation starter among boys and men. Uh, so it works every time, and I've got some great scar stories, you know. So one of my one of my classics, you know. So I'll I'll start with a light one. Yeah, see the scar here on my chin. Yeah, I got that when I was five years old, you know, learning how to ride my bike in the in the alley, you know, behind our house. But then, you know, so then they get going and they think that they've uh, you know got one up on me, and then I bring out you know the time I got shot in the eye with a BB mm-hmm. gun and had to have a BB surgically removed from my eye. Very few people can top that one. That's like a that's like the the winner right there. But I mean, I actually have run into people that have like worse stories. Wow. So I, you know, there's some pretty pretty and and the you have to have a strong stomach too, which I don't. You know, so it can be a it can be a negative. You get people going on this, and and if you get woozy at all with talk about blood and guts, and you know, it it can get pretty bad. I've heard some some pretty horrifying stories after starting, you know, these conversations. So 
you know, it doesn't have to be death of conversation. And, and I believe as Christians, we, we need to be engaging the world. And, and so, for example, Rhett, uh, even recently, our church, you know, once a month we go downtown to uh, in downtown San Antonio for an outreach. And we, we hand out tracts. We just start conversations with people. Well, this this last is actually happened on Sunday. And so on Sunday, I decided, you know, it's been a long time since I've taken my freestyle bike down. And I know that where we go, there are always skateboarders and bikers. And every time I encounter them, I sometimes wish, man, I wished I had my bike with me because it would be an easy way to connect with them and to be able to have conversation. And so this time I, I took the extra step and I packed my bike up and took it downtown and and sure enough uh there was there was a gathering of skateboarders and I just introduced myself to them and they said hey so do you ride show us a trick and I showed them a couple tricks and they were impressed (laughs) they were like wow and and before I knew it then I'm teaching them how to do some things like man I'd like to try that and so I'm letting them get on the bike and try some things well this led into a lot of conversations and uh, one in particular, I ended up getting a chance spending close to an hour with a young man talking to him about the Lord. And at the beginning of the conversation, he he was uh, a little bit uncomfortable going into talk about spiritual things, and he confessed that he was angry with God. But to make a long story short, by the time I was done, and I invited also uh, one of the other pastors of the church, Pastor Al, to come and join me, uh, as we sat down because his, this young man's heart was softening to the gospel. And and I, he was getting to the point where I would open scripture and he'd lean in to as I read it to him. And and it came to the place where I, I asked him, I said, now that we've had a chance to talk about some of these things, do you believe you're at a place where you could repent of your anger against God and of your sin and call upon him for salvation so that your your name could be written in the book of life you know and you know this i'm compressing the story here but essentially leading him to the lord and he said yes i'd like that Amen. and we were able to lead him in in a prayer of salvation and and uh, so but that has to you know that's one of the reasons why we we don't want death of conversation it's very hard to interact with people anymore with them all glued to their phones so, you know, we just got to get out of our comfort zone and we should be, we should become the experts at knowing how to engage people, knowing how to start these conversations. But we're not going to do that if we're stuck on our phones, you know, yeah. if we're stuck on our devices. Thank you for listening to the Media Talk 101 podcast. Be sure to tune in next month for more conversation about media discernment in the light of following Christ. If you're interested in learning more in the meantime, visit mediatalk101.org for helpful articles, videos, and other resources, including archived podcasts. And if you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on this podcast, send them to podcast at mediatalk101.org. That's podcast at mediatalk101.org.